0: What's up, you guys? Happy Wednesday, and welcome back to another episode of 20 something trials. I'm your host, Gabby, and as always, guys, I'm so grateful to have you here with me today. This episode is a good one. It's a special one. And I think it is one that you guys will really, really find so much meaning and goodness and wisdom in. And I am so excited to have had the opportunity to sit down with Chelsea and to bring her your story and some of the things that she is incredibly passionate about. Before we dive into this episode, I just want to remind you that our website is live, which means our newsletter is live as well. I would love if you guys guys would sign up. You can do that by just going to 20somethingtrials.com or you can go the long way and go through our Instagram, which is just at 20 Trials. Click the link in our bio and it will take you there as well. And guys, if you're not already, make sure that you are subscribed to this po- I was going to say subscribe to this channel. Subscribe to the podcast that you've left a rating, you left a review, um, and that you're hanging out on all social platforms. Now, you guys know I'm a big fan of Rachel Hollis and The Hollis Co. over here. I've talked about it many times. So it was really, really exciting to sit down with a member of The Hollis Company and also a podcast producer and somebody who has her own podcast. Like, no pressure, right? So we talk all things from podcasts to activism to formative life experiences, and I'm just really excited to dive in and for you guys to meet the incredible Chelsea. Chelsea are a listener of um, the Rise podcast, you might have heard her introduce herself as producer Chelsea, which I'll be honest, when I heard you talk, I immediately heard that in my head. (laughs) So we've got producer Chelsea live in the flesh today, but you don't have your producer hat on. So go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell our listeners who you are. Yeah. Hi, Uh,
1: I'm Chelsea, sometimes known as producer Chelsea because I am a podcast producer and a video producer here in Austin, Texas. Uh, I'm originally from Slidell, Louisiana, which is a really small town outside of New Orleans. Uh, But I have lived in Austin for quite a few years, and I am just
0: trying to make it work in this uh, COVID world like everybody else. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that's the moral of everybody's story right now, is I'm just trying to make it work. I'm doing my best. Yeah, doing my best is the vibe. (laughs) So now you went to college in Texas. Is that what eventually brought you out of Louisiana?
1: No, I had moved, uh, my mother and I had moved to North Texas and I went to high school in North Texas. Okay. Um, I went to a performance arts magnet school. Um, And then UT just made sense from there because it's, I really wanted to live in Austin. You know, it's such a vibrant, um, creative city and they had so many different programs and i had no idea really what i everything i wanted to do you didn't need a college degree for but i really grew up i was the first uh, person in my family to graduate from university so that was there was never a question that i was going to go to college so i was trying to figure out how i could go to college without knowing what to go to college for and yeah. ut just had so many
0: opportunities so What were some of the options that you wanted that didn't require a college degree?
1: Well, I was, so I was in a performance art magnet program for dance. So there was a period of time in which I really thought that I was going to go be a Broadway dancer, professional dancer. Um, Then I learned that professional dancers, you know, make less than 30 grand a year and only have a 10 year career and that really scared me so and also i mean i i don't know that i i would have been able to do that uh i still love dancing but it was not going to be my career um i wanted to be an actress i wanted to make movies with my friends i wanted to create like activist performance art disruptions i wanted to be you know uh i wanted to be Lewis and Clark and Indiana Jones but we have satellites now and we know everything that's on the planet so there was nothing new to find and I was scared of space so I really <laughs> those were the kind of things I was saying to my mom when I was 18 and she was like I don't know how to help you you should go get an accounting degree because I just don't want you to be like broke so <laughs> she's like dude you're on your own I don't know what to tell you I don't know what to tell you like none of that's gonna work um, but actually, a, a really formative experience for me was um, when I was in high school. Uh, so my mom's are ER nurses, and my mom was the charge nurse of an emergency room in North Texas. And from time to time, they would have volunteers uh, of young people who were interested like in you know, going into the medical profession, which I wasn't necessarily interested in. But my mom was like, I want you to come do this so that you can see what happens when you drive drunk so that you never get in a car with a drunk driver. And I was like, okay. So I went and uh, volunteered on the night shift in this trauma center, uh, in the only level one trauma center that was in that area. And it was also, this was pre-ACA. So this was a county hospital, meaning it was primarily for people who don't have health insurance. Uh, And that was really eye-opening for me and a really powerful experience. of seeing kind of some of like the inequities that were, that I had not been, I had been fortunate enough to not experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I ended up doing that throughout high school, staying and volunteering in the ER. And I went into college thinking that I might um, try to do pre-med, but then I found that I was just terrible at math. And so, you know, trying to kind of like pluck out the lessons behind the things that I liked like I was like well I'm working in this hospital and I like it so obviously I want to be a doctor and then doctor I just want to help people like yeah. so yeah. I, I'm gonna keep that like I'm gonna keep that part of it but I'm gonna yeah
0: yeah that's so interesting and I think you know Very early on, you know, like you said, we have all these different thoughts and ideas of what we want to be and what we want to do. And eventually, you know, as we get older, they evolve. But I have had many similar experiences to you where it's like, well, you know, I kind of suck at this part of it. That's really crucial to me getting there. (laughs) Like I always joke, like for a little bit, I wanted to go into exercise science. I can't do science. I can't do math. I don't do numbers. And so I was like, just because I like to work out does not mean that I should be an exercise science major. So that was a very short lived uh, stint as well. So, but I I think that's such a common thing that we all experience is this back and forth of what do I want to do and trying to uncover, you know, what it really is that like sets your heart on fire about these things that you're so passionate about. And, you know, I think it's really telling. And like you said, it was a formative experience for you to go to these hospitals and, you know, to see the inequities of our world. And, you know, oftentimes we don't see it until we're placed right in the middle of it, especially Mm -hmm. if it's not our reality. Can you talk a little bit? Oh, totally. Uh, Yeah,
1: no. I mean, this is something that stays with me forever. It's also part of the reason that a a passionate part of, of my personal activism is trying to advocate for uh you know medicare for all is something that i'm really passionate about and supportive of and the reason why i support it is because of my experiences uh in this hospital before the affordable care act was passed um so this was for references was a hospital with or not a hospital i'm sorry this was an emergency room with 70 beds and we regularly had 120 patients it was our average another like 40 to 50 in the emergency room are i mean and i'm sorry we'd have another 40 to 50 in the waiting room we had an average of a 12 to 14 hour wait um some of the things that i was asked to do as a volunteer because they were so understaffed would be transporting patients up you know from floors uh or from the ambulance bay assisting in transports from the helipad um i mean things that like to be totally honest like you probably don't want a 16 year old to do i like to say that i took it very seriously <laughs> and i did my best to to be as courteous and professional as possible but i'm sure that if some people had found out that i was 16 they would not have been happy about it and i totally understand that um greeting patients uh trying to explain the the reason for the wait um also trying to go and wrangle there was there were two interpreters who spoke Spanish who worked for the entire hospital. So they were often on other floors, but I would say probably at least half of our, um, of our patients, you know, did not speak English or spoke English as a second language. And we're definitely more comfortable speaking Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you want somebody who you want people to be able to communicate effectively and comfortably when they're already in a crisis situation. So, it was a constant struggle to go try to find somebody who could speak Spanish. And if it wasn't the interpreter, it was maybe a nurse or even somebody else in the waiting room who, would, who was on hour seven of their wait and just wanted to help somebody. Um, I think maybe one of the single most impactful experiences that I had was I was working in the waiting room. So it was my job to kind of greet people, get them in the system, just like kind of like more of an admin thing, which was definitely an appropriate more appropriate thing for me to do. Um, and there was a couple that came in, but they didn't come check in. And I asked them if they wanted to check in and they said no. And so I thought that maybe they were waiting for somebody who was who was already being seen. Um, and then another nurse who had worked there for a long time came and she saw them and she let me know that actually what was happening was the wife and the couple was in kidney failure and she needed weekly dialysis, but she was um, undocumented and therefore could not get insurance, was not employed and could not receive weekly dialysis. So the way that she received weekly dialysis was they would come and wait in the emergency room, waiting room until she passed out and then we would give her emergency dialysis. And this was her life. She did this every single week so that she could receive emergency dialysis. Um, and that was how she stayed alive. And learning that at 16, I was just like, you know, and then you go home and then you hear people were like, this is the greatest country in the world. And like, there's a lot of things about being American that I think you can really be proud of it. But the things that we should be proud of, right. are like our ingenuity and our willingness to embrace change. Like, you know, we're, we're a country who we embrace change, right. Like uh, in our foundation to say like, this is a new way to govern. This is a new way to live. So, I was like, if if those are the things I want to be proud of, then I want to say that this should change and that this woman should be able to receive dialysis. uh, And, you know, we should be providing for the people that live in our country.
0: Yeah. And I imagine at 16, like that's such a formative, influential time in your life. Right. And so to see something like I can even see it as you're saying it, like there were moments where it seemed like you were just wincing as you spoke about it, because it's such a, I'm sure it's such a painful moment to recall, but I imagine the perspective change or just the way that that opened your eyes was probably like monumental for you. Um, and so is that the moment that really set you on this path of personal activism? I, I was fortunate
1: that Personal activism was something that my family definitely encouraged from a, a really young age. Uh, my mother wanted to be a nurse because she felt very passionately about helping people, and after she did her initial rounds at this um, this emergency room, you know, she was offered other positions that would have been easier is not the right word, but it, you know, she was offered positions at hospitals where most people did have health insurance or like private hospitals or doing like private health care. But she chose to stay and she chose to run the emergency room when it was offered to her because she knew this was the place that she could make the most impactful difference. And so I think having a mother who I'm very, who I was and am very close to, who really encouraged me to always think of other people um, and to to embrace that sort of like activism and that kind of like radical empathy side of myself um, you know in some ways we all are a product of, of our upbringing and so I'm very fortunate that I had a parent who really really encouraged that in me so when I saw that when that happened at the hospital because my mom was there because why I was volunteering there I went into a hallway and cried and I told her about it and she was like, well, what are we going to do about it? You know what I mean? Like she, she wasn't just like, well, that's kind of the way it is. Or, you know, she was like, you're right. This isn't right. We should do something about it. Um, So, so to answer your question, I mean, I think it was, it was always a through light in my life. um, But definitely those experiences at the hospital crystallized for me that I didn't want to be a bystander. I wanted to be active in the solution.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, your story makes me think of, especially when you were talking about, you know, the many patients who didn't speak English, um, the school that I taught at, um, mm-hmm. we had a very diverse demographic and it's one of the things that I loved about it as a teacher. I went to school there I loved it as a student. I felt like it was the most real world, um, real world, I guess, image or, you know, form of expression that we could get to in high school. Um, but, you know, one of the things was that as from the teacher standpoint, I had many students who didn't speak English. Um, now, I am not bilingual. Um, and so it presented all of these all of these problems. And, you know, be, and when I say problems, I mean, like Google Translate didn't translate well, you know, so it right. was like really, really difficult for me to even try to give them what they needed. And, you know, when I would go and speak to the more seasoned teachers, the answer I typically got was, this is just how it is. And I remember having that same thought of like, but that's not fair. I remember, you know, it was probably the first week of school realizing I had five students who didn't speak English. And I remember I was talking to my boyfriend and I was like, this is nuts. This is nuts. Like, this is not fair. You know, this is not This is not an equal opportunity for them. This is crap. And I'm just supposed to be okay with it, you know? And so, so much of what you said, I was able to resonate with. Obviously what you saw and experienced is incredibly intense. um, But it's still that idea of these people are not given what they need and it's not really their fault. You know, I think as a society, we can take the blame for that, that it's how we've handled things in the past and we haven't yet changed it.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I do think it's definitely comparable because I, I would imagine that going to school, while it's not the same, obviously it's not like a, a crisis situation like when you right. go to an emergency room, but it is also every single day, right? Like it's five days a week, eight hours a day, where something that we take for granted, which is just basic communication, yep. um, is impossible, right? It's, it's stifled. Uh, something that reminds me of that I think about a lot when i sometimes get into arguments with people about try to be gentle about it but like gentle arguments about um trying to be more empathetic for people who may are learning english um mm-hmm. is it, it's not exactly the same it's it sounds honestly very privileged but we only can live inside our own experiences but when i was living in france i had studied at that point french for seven or eight years wow. um and i thought oh i'm so ready Go And like everybody says when you do immersion, that's when like you just get so great at it. Um, And I was not prepared for how mentally and psychologically exhausting it was to be surrounded, to be inundated all around with visual and auditory information in a language that was not my original language yeah. it was just like every even if I wasn't actively reading things there's like every sign right every like, every conversation around me the voice on the metro um people in shops trying to order food going to the grocery store reading ingredients like I would go home and I was just so exhausted every yeah. day um, and I was like, oh, it's because I have to do so much more work just to like be a person in this space right now. And that's okay. Cause you know, I, I signed up to come here and I knew I didn't speak the language and it, no one owes me English in their own country, but it, it gave me like a, a newfound understanding of like how difficult that would be. Uh, and then the other thing that I noticed was like, I mean, you said that you were really kind of extroverted and gregarious. And you like to talk to people. I also really love to talk to people. I love to meet new people and make new friends. And I had to come to grips with the fact when I lived in France that I could I could have a conversation with somebody in French. Uh, I could I could understand and be understood. I was never going to be the same level of funny or charismatic. Like I couldn't, I literally could not be myself in French the way that I could be myself in English. Um, and so now what I took from that was when I interact with people for whom English is their second language, when they're really, really good at English, I'm just like, just awestruck and very jealous because it's really impressive but if they're struggling the empathy that I try to remember is just how difficult it is to not be able to be yourself not be able to be your best and truest self because of a a communication barrier that's not your fault Mm -hmm. and the kind of like visual and auditory overload of being inundated with information that you can't necessarily understand and so when you say like you were trying to be you know the most empathetic and like the most, to have the most resources for your students, like I can imagine what a struggle, how that must've felt for you knowing that you couldn't, you couldn't meet these kids where they were at. And that right. hard.
0: Yeah. And you know, especially as a first year teacher, there are so many things that we are trying, to, I was just trying to survive. Right. And so then yeah. I had these these sweet kiddos who I just, I wanted to be like, I wanted to be the best version of myself for them. The way that I connected to the person next to them who spoke English, like he'd never had that same experience. And we, you know, we could never have, have had that connection because I didn't have the resources. And, you know, we also had one, we had one ESL aide who rotated between like six schools, six That's schools, rough. like, it, to me, that's yeah. insanity, you know, it, it doesn't do anything for them, Um, and so you know, I remember translating a story and asking him if it made sense, and he was like, "No," and I was like, <laughs> "Oh my god, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do?" So mm-hmm. it is. It's it's all these things that we don't have to think about on a daily basis, which are absolutely right. It is a privilege, and until we are in a different country, and you know, the experience that you had in Paris, I had in Italy, where it was like. Mm-hmm. I can speak the basics. I can get myself to where I need to go, but anything above that, I've got nothing, you know? And it yeah. really is such a humbling experience to check your reality and realize like how easy you have it, you know, yeah, and how difficult some people are seriously living. Um, and so I, I agree with you. I think we've had many of the same, in a way, the same experiences of realizing the the blessings that we've had, the privilege that we've had. Um, But I also think it's a really great opportunity to use that as a launch pad into, you know, continuing to to advocate for people who need it. And, you know, I think as a teacher, it's a role I take very seriously and I can tell it's something um, that you're very passionate about. So what are a few of, whether it's causes, um, specific demographics, groups, what are some things that you find yourself now, you know, fast forward a few years, really passionate about?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so something, let's see, it's hard, to, it's hard to narrow it down. Um, it's funny that you, that you mentioned that cause actually something that I'm doing in my current role, uh, is we had a podcast that existed from before the time that I came on at the Hollis Co, Um, that was primarily marriage and relationships. Uh, it was called rise together. Um, and so it was, it was more of like an advice type show. And around the time that I started, lucky you know i was really fortunate that uh my hosts for that show rachel and dave hollis they felt very committed and called to maybe try to tweak the format of that show to have more conversations about um more like social issues and i was like great like this is my wheelhouse is what i'm interested in Mm -hmm. um and then recently uh rachel and dave hollis announced a couple weeks ago that they're ending their marriage and so then a lot of people naturally were like well what's going to happen to their marriage podcast and what we decided to do is we're pivoting that show this has already been announced so it's like totally fine uh we're pivoting that show to be about rising together in community with other people um and it's going to be hosted by dave and it's going to be dave in conversation with all different kinds of people with activists with authors storytellers politicians we just recorded an episode that'll probably be out by the time this episode of 20 something trials is out with Rosemary Ketchum who is the first out elected trans official in the history of West Virginia mm-hmm. so these are the kind of stories that were that I'm now actively producing for the show which means that I am spending a lot of time thinking about the question that you just asked me where all of a sudden it's like uh, you know, Dave and my manager Cameron, who's the head of media for Hollisco, they're just like, hey, who do you think is important to be on the show? And I'm like, oh, what? I have so, a list. <laughs> I have a whole list. So okay, so uh, one thing that I'm currently involved in I think is is one of the most incredible experiences and honestly honors of my life, uh, that I would encourage other people who have the time and resources if they can to get involved is I am a CASA volunteer. So are you familiar with the CASA program? I'm not, no. Oh, so CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocate. uh, And you work as an advocate and a guardian ad litem, meaning it's a form of legal guardian for children who are in the foster care system or in like the CPS system. So each CASA, the issue is that when kids enter the system, they do this, there's this constant rotation of people in their lives, right? Like they have a caseworker usually from CPS or DFPS and they have therapists and they have doctors. And if they get put in placements, those placements change and they go through the court system and they see different judges and they have an attorney. Like uh, my, my current CASA kid has had several different attorneys in the life of their case because they usually get appointed a student attorney. So it's only for a semester. So it's already an incredibly destabilizing experience for a child. And then having all of these people rotate only furthers that destabilization. So the idea of a CASA advocate is you come in and you are with that kid for the life of their CPS case. So from the moment, not the moment, but as soon as possible after the case is opened to when the CPS case is closed, either because they go back home, hopefully reunification happens or they are adopted or they age out of the system um you are there as a healthy connection and as a stabilizing force in their life so it's everything from what I really like about it is it's like a little bit investigating like you spend a lot of time calling people and seeing what's going on and trying to talk to family members and and gathering information that you then turn over to the judge and um during hearings and then there's a little bit of like Kind of like law and order courtroom intrigue because you do go to all of the um all of the hearings and the judge asks to hear from cps and then from the lawyers for the children because not a lot of people know about this but if a child enters the cps system they are assigned a lawyer it's called their attorney ad litem and that attorney is bound by law to advocate for whatever the child asks for so i mean Obviously, a lot of times that has to do with like if they want to see their parents, but the kind of the more gentle example that we use when we're trying to explain it to children is like, if you told your attorney at litem that you wanted to eat ice cream every day for dinner and you wanted to go live with Rihanna, they would be bound by law to stand up in front of the judge and say, your honor, my client deserves ice cream every single day and they need to be living with Rihanna right now. Please get Miss Fenty on the phone so we can get this done. That's what an attorney is required to do. The guardian ad litem, the CASA, is supposed to advocate solely for the well-being of the child. So then I might stand up and say, Your Honor, I think ice cream is a great sometimes treat. I think it really can be a part of a balanced diet, but maybe not for every single meal. And unfortunately, this child doesn't have a healthy connection with Miss Fenty. But I think if we could maybe set something up with Rihanna, we could try to see what that would look like. So that is, <laughs> that is, that's the example <laughs> we use for kids. But, um, but yeah, my casa advocacy, uh, I think is probably this, the biggest time, like the amount of time that I spend. That's a, that's a pretty large time commitment. Yeah. But if you have the ability and the resources, especially, I would say if you are a younger person and this is something that is close to your heart, um, or if you are from an underrepresented community. Um, when I went in for my training, it was with about 40 other people. And I was one of maybe four or five people of color. And I was the youngest person there. Um, because it makes sense, like to be a cost volunteer, you're doing a lot of a lot of work going to see kids, so a lot of people that were there were empty nesters mm-hmm. or recent retirees, which is amazing. Like, what an incredible way yeah. to spend time if you have the time. But it means that there's also a lot of opportunity for younger people, especially like for teens. You know, like teens might want, might like to have a CASA volunteer that's a little bit closer in age to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're always really excited when, at least for my chapter of CASA, which is CASA of Travis County. Uh, they're always really excited to see younger volunteers come in.
0: This is awesome. I've never heard of this before, and I'm really happy that you brought it up. And so what what does the time commitment look like? So you're with them for – well, I guess it really depends, right? It's a, it's It's got to be a case-by-case case, um, case timeline. By case.
1: You are required to go visit the child at their placement at least once a month unless they are – and I mean, this is probably different state to state. So as you know, Texas is a huge state, right? Like you can drive all day and not get from one side yeah. to the other. So, and the thing about CPS cases is that a kid in Travis County in Austin, Texas can enter the system, be taken away from their parents. They can be placed in El Paso. They can be placed in Amarillo. They can be suddenly be seven or eight hours away from everything they've ever known. Um, and so that's part of the time commitment is that if you, you don't know, like when you accept a case, um, obviously I accepted a case with a child who was from Travis County and several times during the course of the case, there have been discussions about moving the child to be seven, eight, 10 hours away. Um, but that's just part of it. If that happened, I wouldn't be required to visit in person once a month. Um, but i would be required to at least maintain like weekly phone calls okay so like that's kind of where it becomes time commitment yeah Um, obviously in the time of coronavirus uh we're not they've changed a lot of like those protocols um for visiting children because we still obviously the welfare and best interest of the child is always what we're what we're aiming for so it's not in their best interest if i'm going around and like if i have four roommates and then i am I'm, you know, possibly exposing a child or, or their placement. Um, so we've transitioned mostly to, like, Zoom calls and phone calls. Yeah. Depending on the placement of the child. Um, but, yeah, it's they say to prepare for about 10 to 15 hours wow. uh, of, of time commitment. It can really vary depending on, like, if you're coming up on a hearing um, or, like, you know, how stable the case is at any moment. Yeah, Some people yeah. have kids where they're going back and forth from family members. So therefore, obviously that would require more of a time commitment than somebody who's like, you know, maybe in a foster home where they're feeling really stable.
0: Yeah, I, I got my first glimpse into the foster care system. Um, what would have been this past semester, so the spring semester, I actually had two students in the same class who were both in foster care. Um, mm-hmm. And it was very interesting to learn about their backgrounds and see the way they interacted with the world that was obviously it was very different than the way that um you know the person next to them who grew up in a, in a stable home with both parents you know the way they reacted was also very different And so it was it mm-hmm. was to me like a really big teaching moment in how to handle students who come from these different backgrounds um, for people who are not familiar with the foster system and i am you know i've had two students but that that's as far as my knowledge goes with it are you able to share a little bit about why a program like this is detrimental to these kids i think something that a lot of people
1: who don't interact with the foster care system might not know is that you know like we we watch like you might have seen it like in tv shows or movies but it's not like you know, your kid comes home, your kid comes to your house, and then they're just like your kid and you hang out. Um, you are basically a contractor. You as a foster parent are a contractor for CPS who has custody of this child. Therefore, everything that you do for and on behalf of the child essentially goes through CPS. And I mean, obviously, like every CPS... I'm assuming like every department probably works a little bit differently, different States. I know have different regulations. So my experience is in Texas. Um, But in Texas, for example, something we learned when we were doing our training is like kids in foster care, they can't go on a sleepover until they get permission from their social worker at CPS because, you know, who knows who's going to be there. All of a sudden, like there's all these like, you can't go on certain kinds of field trips unless you go and get this like signed by three or four or five different people all working on your case. Right. Like these little parts of child and adolescent life, they become institutionalized and that doesn't change just because you're in a foster home. Uh, It continues. So I think something that I, that I love about the CASA program again, is that you get to be this like, this one kind of like healthy stabilizing influence in a child's life um, where these things might be changing and they might be feel really institutionalized, but at least, you know, like your cost is going to come this, your cost is coming this week and you're going to go, you know, hang out at the mall or you're going to go ride go-karts at the park. Um, or you're going to go see like an open mic. Um, you know, if you're working with like teens or adolescents and it can sometimes be literally the only thing in their life that is normal, that yeah. is not institutionalized. Um, I'm, you know, especially if you have like an adolescent case, you might probably acknowledge like, Hey, this is weird. I'm like your weird adult friend that <laughs> we're going to go hang out and do stuff. Um, but I think mostly, you know, it's, it's just about, it's just about being there and trying to reorient, some of those destabilizing, institutionalizing experiences um, and kind of recontextualize them to be
0: something that they can think about positively after yep. this experience is over. I think that consistency is is key, is what I would imagine yeah. for these kids, right? Um, and I had never heard of this program before. So if somebody is interested um, in getting involved in this, what is the best way for them to go about that? So each
1: state and sometimes city has their own CASA program. Um, like, for example, we have CASA of Travis County, which is what I work with, but we also have CASA of Texas, which operates in the same spaces. Um, so it just really depends on which organization you can get in touch with, like what, you know, kind of volunteer needs they have. But in general, I mean, we our goal with CASA is that every kid that enters the system would have a CASA and that that's a noble goal, but we're not anywhere near there yet. Mm -hmm. Um, So the first thing I think would be to just to Google CASA or court appointed special advocate, and then your city or your state. Um, And then one other thing I wanted to mention, because I know, like I said, like it's uh, being a, being a CASA is a huge time commitment and not everybody has that time and which is totally understandable. Um, So they do actually offer at least CASA of Travis County offers other opportunities that are a little bit lower commitment to get involved, And one of them that I thought was really interesting that I originally was maybe considering doing acronyms. It's like, Oh, I'm, I remembered it. Okay. So you can, you can sign up to be something called an EFE, which is like early family engagement. Uh, And basically you get to play detective Play is maybe like not the best word, but you get to do a lot of detective work right up front. So say a new case has come into the system and they need to One of the first things they need to do, right. Is figure out, Every possible family member for this child because we always want to keep kids with their family whenever, absolutely like uh, institutions or even like new homes are always secondary to keeping a child with their family.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so the EFE comes in and they just do like all this groundwork. It's like it's literally scouring social media, it's calling up like known contacts, it's trying to and then online, you literally build a family tree for this child and okay. you fill out all of these people. And then that gets passed on to the social worker and the, the eventual CASA to be like, here's all of your, here are all your contacts. So that's something that you can do. That's like much less time commitment, right? Cause you're not following a specific case. You're just coming in and doing the groundwork yeah. for whatever
0: cases are available.
1: That's, that's- it's an- enormously helpful.
0: Oh, I imagine, and and I think it's great that these opportunities even exist. So guys, everything that Chelsea just mentioned, I'm gonna go ahead and link it in the show notes. Um, this is actually something that I would really like to look into as well. I think it's so important, and it's one of the things that I have learned in my career is like that consistency for a kid can be like make or break. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think what I think this work is crucial. So I'm, I'm excited to look into it, and hopefully, if you guys have the time for it, look into it as well. I think it's a great way to get involved and, and make impact. Um, this is so cool, and this is why I love this podcast, man. Because I get to talk to people like you who have these, you know, these passions and these um, paths that they've been on that I had no idea about, you know. And why would I? So it's it's so fascinating to me. So let's pivot a little bit. Now we know that activism for you started very young, um, but I think what's also very interesting about you is that you always had this art art creative mindset. It seems like, it seemed like this was kind of in you from a very early age. Um, so are you, do you still feel like you're able to use that side of you in the work you do now? Is that, you know, something that is still a very big part of your life?
1: Oh, totally. Um, I mean, I, I consider myself like, I think being a podcast producer is definitely still in the creative field. Um, and that was, you know, You said something earlier that really resonated with me, which is like, when you're young, you, you feel so overwhelmed by like all these options, but you also kind of see them as tracks, right? Where it's like, oh, I'm going to go down this art track, and then I'm just going to do all of these art things until I'm A famous successful artist or I could go down this doctor track and I could go to medical school and I could go to my fellowship and then I could be a doctor but they all feel really isolated from each other Mm -hmm. and that's definitely how I felt when I was younger Uh, and the older that I got the more honestly my my desires for myself and my career became more broad because it became less about like I want to make this much money and I want to live in this big of a house and I want to Impact this many people, and I want to, you know, have this many fans or this many followers. And it became more like, okay, like what are the actual core things that I want for my life? Uh, and it was like, you know, you said it was like I, I've always loved to be creative. I would like to be creative in some way, and it might not be exactly how I thought it was going to be. You know, I would love to be able to make a positive impact uh, and meet people where they're at, and like that might not necessarily be medicine or it might not be like super hands-on but what does that look like and so as i kind of broadened those horizons um i definitely yes always kept like creativity and wanting to be creative in some way um at the forefront and and you know tried to really explore different ways that i could marry those two things
0: yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the path that you're, you're on right now, especially with this recent change um, with the leaders of your company, right? Obviously, you know, the divorce is something that you guys as a company, I feel like are probably working through, but the opportunity that it is presenting you in the podcast space is really remarkable, Right that, That's a very, very cool opportunity, and I feel like that in itself is allowing you to marriage the two things that we've really talked about, right, which mm-hmm. is that activism and that creative side for you. So one of the things that Chelsea and I talked about before we started recording um, was whether or not the 20 year old version of her thought this is where she would be now. And you had an excellent answer to that. So hopefully you can you can remodel it in some way. but the answer, truthfully, is is no, right? No, I, yeah, I,
1: it's hard for me to even imagine, like, what 20-year-old Chelsea would think about me now, Um, even though I do actually think about it a lot, because I just, I think, well, first of all, there's just so many things about 2020 that, like, none of us could have ever imagined, (laughs) I don't think, Uh, I, I don't know if you're on TikTok, but I spend a lot of time, like, in my free time, like, browsing through TikTok, and that's a really common sort of trope is just like this idea of a time traveler. And like, what if you could time travel back to yourself in like 2013 and be like, Hey, guess who's president? And guess what? Guess what? We're all at home. Like, you know what I mean? Like just trying to guess all these, all these like unimaginable things. Right. So I think 20 year old Chelsea would be surprised by a lot of that. I don't think the 20 year old Chelsea really knew what a podcast was. So I think that would be a bit of a learning curve, but I think, I think I, 20-year-old Chelsea would be really excited to see how, hmm. I think there was always a part of me that was afraid, right? That all of my creative ambitions were somehow going to evaporate in adulthood. That That's kind of like a, a common uh, maybe motif, especially like in media is like, you'll see like a younger character or younger version of a character and they love to be creative or they want to follow these like wild dreams. And then you fast forward to them as an adult and it's like, and I work a desk job and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But I I think I didn't understand how that happened. And so I had this kind of fear that there was just some magical transformation that you go through in your twenties and you somehow stop being creative. If you're a creative person uh, and it all just goes away, and I was really worried about that, and I was worried that somehow I wasn't going to find my way to a creative kind of profession or career. Uh, and so I think I like to think that 20 year old Chelsea would need to be would need podcast explained to her, but would be really excited to see that uh, that. That sort of mysterious transformation did not occur, and that you can you can build creativity into almost any career path that you choose if that's something that's important to you.
0: Yeah, you you had a comment about not knowing what a podcast is. I have to tell you this story, and then we'll move on. (laughs) I was on the phone with my grandma, gosh, two days ago, Mm -hmm. and I told her I had a podcast. I don't know how I hadn't told her before, but. Anyway, so I, I, I said to her, she you know, I told her what I was doing that day or whatever. And she's like, Gabriella, you have a what? And (laughs) I'm explaining and she goes, can I watch it on TV? And I was like, nope, can't watch it on TV. And she's like, well, what time does it come on? And I'm like, nope, doesn't work like that either. (laughs) It It was so cute. She's 81. It was the cutest, most innocent, like you're on TV. And I, my, my very, Long Island, Italian grandmother. Right. And I was just Mm -hmm. like, Nope, I'm going to send it. I'll send the link to, you know, my aunt. And I was like, and she'll show it to you. Cause she's like, can I get it on my phone? I'm like, Graham, we don't know. We, she does it. So she has a cell phone. Mm -hmm. Doesn't know how to open her cell phone. Mind you, I have, um, two other cousins and then my brother on this side who have all written out like detailed notes for her on how to use her. (laughs) phone, And I'm Mm -hmm. like, Graham, go to the notes. And she's like, oh, I just, I don't get it. And I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pressure note, but I think it's really cool the way, right? Like that media has evolved. The other point that you made, um, that my grandmother is not involved in is that, you know, I think when we are kids and we are creative, we do, we have this idea that it's just going to get stifled because I don't know about you, but I was always taught that like, not taught, but my parents taught by society, by the world that like, Mm -hmm. you are not successful when you're creative, you know, the Mm -hmm. tradition. And right. And then we can even talk about, well, what is success? Like what, how do we even define that? And I think that's a whole different tangent, but you know, I think that creativity, we are almost programmed to have it stripped out from us. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's almost this, it's it's work in a sense to make sure that we don't lose that. And we were able to keep that side of us, even if it is, you know, as a side project, even if it's, you know, whatever it looks like, but making sure that we're still able to keep those parts of ourselves. Um, It's very important, but it's also not something that we all know how to do, nor is it something that we're. Expected to do, um, mm-hmm. so I think it's really interesting that you bring that up because I imagine that that's something that many many people, um, especially who work very you know possibly traditional um, corporate roles, experience. Definitely,
1: I am um, the the job that I had before I went to the Hollisco was being like a creative producer, a content producer for a tech startup. Mm -hmm. Um, and that ultimately was not a great fit for me, but I learned a lot of lessons, uh, about it not being a great fit, but also, (laughs) um, but also what I found was, and I think especially probably in like younger, smaller companies, but our startup was also bought by a major corporation It was bought by Cisco. So we got to kind of get a glimpse into this like very corporate Uh, technological world while working there. And I I do really believe what I said, which is that like if creativity is something that is important to you, there are ways that you can inject creativity into almost any, any position. Um, So, you know, we, we saw that I think a lot of companies right now um, are having like a, both a social and a generational reckoning uh, with how do they, how do they attract and keep younger talent? Because millennials and now Gen Z who are entering the workforce, they have very different ideas of work-life balance. Like we have very different ideas. Like you said of like what defines success for a long time. Success was a certain pay grade and the promise of, uh, you know, like a 401k or a pension or retirement. And for younger people now, you know, millennials and, and Gen Z were supposed to live to be like, I don't know, like at least 90 or 95. So that looks like another 30 years, another third of your life post the retirement age. Chances are, we're probably not going to just stop working at 65, right? You want to do something, even if you're not working your professional career job, you want something to do for the next 35 years. So that's just one way that I think that we're thinking completely differently about how we build out our professions. And I think companies know that, or at least the good ones know that, and they're starting to think of new ways. Like, you know, we see it in terms of like flat structures or um, giving people, you know, kind of like more nebulous titles and letting them kind of move from team to team. I think if you have, if you work for a company that is thinking in that way and you kind of see some of those harbingers, of that thought process, you can use that to your advantage because you can go to your boss and say, I have this idea. I have this really cool thing and that's something that happens at the Hollis Co. all the time is, you know, we had a woman, the woman that runs our foundation, the Hollis Foundation, which we give, I think it's 10% of our profits, uh, away. the woman that runs that foundation started out, I believe in customer service, but she was so passionate about that. She went to our leadership and she was like, I have an idea and I have a plan on how to execute it. And because we're a younger agile company, she, you know, and she did have a good plan. She had the chops to back it up. That became her new role at the company. So that would just, I mean, those are the kind of things I think about when I, when I think about how, if you're motivated, you can inject some of those things that you're passionate about into your career and if you are faced with like this very rigid if you happen to be faced with like leadership who is really shut down to those ideas then maybe that's not the best place for you
0: Yeah, I actually had a similar conversation with a woman this morning um, and we talked a lot about how the way that millennials and Gen Z view the workforce and the workplace is so different than, you know, what my parents, you know, grew up in, especially I think of when my parents were entering the workforce, you know, what that looked like to them. Um, And so I do, I think it's really, I think it's pivotal. I think it's important, man, like the work that we want to see done. Um, And I would also like to talk about what the Hollis Co. is like, because it is, one, one of those um companies that are newer and it seems like a lot of your employees and please correct me if i'm wrong but it seems like it is
1: um it really yeah i mean it really runs the gamut i think yeah one of the things that i was the most excited about um when i was interviewing for the position obviously like working in a, in a workforce where people are more at my age, looked really exciting. Um, but I definitely don't want to like negate any of the work of the people at our company who don't fit into like a millennial or Gen Z generation because they're all amazing. I mean, I think I said it offline, but the people that work at the Hollis company make it such an incredible place to work. Uh, and it's the commitment. i should put this. So, you know how, like, you know how like relationship advice always says like you have to work at your relationship right? you have to work at your marriage. It's, it's this choice. It's this work that you do. Uh, I think that's true of your work relationships as well. And I, I learned that because when I started at the Hollis company, I saw what it looked like when everybody worked really hard to make it a nice place to work. Mm -hmm. Cause that, I mean, that's just something that you have to consciously put effort into is just being pleasant to people, being, you know, we call choosing joy, choosing joy, even when you're stressed out or you're frustrated. Um, it's about making an effort to be inclusive. Like I sat down to eat lunch on like my second day and two people from a different team came and sat with me and I was like, what is happening? Yeah. is so strange. We've never happened anywhere else that I worked. Um, so that, you know, that was definitely really important to me. I also love The company has um, is majority women and I've never worked in an office that has like a majority female workforce. Um, And I have found that that is that is something that I really enjoy. The energy of it is is really fun. Um, But we also we love we love the men and, you know, we hope we love all the different people who work at the Hollis Company. Even if they don't identify as women, and uh, and we always, you know, make sure to try to make sure that everybody feels included. So,
0: Chelsea's like to my coworkers who are men. I promise, I do enjoy you. That's literally exactly what I was thinking about because,
1: well, because my manager is is one of like the only like five or six men that work there right currently. Um, actually that's not true. We've hired people since quarantine has started. Okay. And so I, I might not actually be like accurately reflecting <laughs> the current demographics of the company, in which case if my like people person is listening, I'm so sorry. Um, but he is, he is one of the men that works there and he's, an, he's the best manager I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not just saying that in case you're listening, Cameron. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I literally, I thought of him, and I was like, I don't want Cameron to think that this means that I don't like working with him
0: because I do. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's awesome. Um, because you know what? Not many people have that that opportunity to work with people that they love. You know, I think it's something that I was really fortunate in my first job that I love. And I worked, I work in a primarily women dominated field. Um, Mm -hmm. and I swear I've got some of the coolest coworkers in the world, but it does, it's so make or break, right? I think that company culture is so important. Um, but one of the segments, when I say one of the segment that we have on this podcast is called truth and trial. Um, Mm -hmm. and the reason it exists is because I believe it's incredibly important to talk about the hard stuff. Um, and so, my question to you is, what has been probably the the biggest trial in your career so far? And then my follow up to that is, what did it teach you?
1: Ooh, okay. Now we're getting into like the interview. Done. <laughs> <sighs> so, so I figured out, you know. a lot of trial and error that I really liked video producing, which was my background until I went into podcasting. Um, and I, I wanted to, you know, produce web series and, and do vlogs and do all this kind of stuff, but it was, it's a really hard and very competitive field to break into. Mm -hmm. It's also not a field that typically, affords like a, a salaried position with regular hours and kind of steady income. Um, so for a long time, when I was trying to build up a, my reel or like build up kind of my portfolio of projects, I had to do other jobs. So I, I mentioned I was a nanny and I also, I did social media, kind of freelance for several companies. I did graphic design, um, drawing on my art background. Uh, I'm not saying I was particularly good at it, but I I was I knew enough about Adobe to be able to do it. Sometimes I built websites for people, uh, and I had a freelance position that was actually. Hmm. I had a I got a position that was technically freelance, but it ended up becoming this dirty little word called permalance. You ever heard of that? You guys ever use that expression? So permalance is, is the term that we use kind of tongue in cheek when somebody hires you as a contractor or freelance to do a job, just like in perpetuity. Gotcha. You're essentially okay. like you essentially do a full-time job, but not have to pay you not have to pay your taxes yeah. or give you any benefits. Oh, so love that answer. Yeah, it's great. So I got a job as a permalancer and I was, 25, I think. And so I was just, I, at the point I was just excited that somebody like wanted to hire me and I was like, right. I'm going to do all this stuff. And it was all the above. It was social media and it was graphics. And then it was also, there was the promise of maybe getting to do some video producing and some video work. So I was so excited. And I didn't even pay attention to the fact that like, they weren't going to pay my health insurance, which they should have been because I was working there every week. Uh, they weren't going to pay my taxes, which means I had a much higher, like, tax liability, I had to put a third of my, of my paychecks away, Um, and then the biggest thing, and this is maybe, like, the biggest lesson also that I took away from it, that I, if if anybody listening to this is, is very young and is just starting out in their career, maybe not young and starting out in their career, this is the one lesson that I wish I had known, which is that sometimes people are going to come at you especially if you're somebody who's like motivated and talented and enthusiastic and they'll offer you like, Hey, you know, you're right out of school. And so I want you to come and be the creative director of, of my new company. Right. And it seems so exciting. You're like, Oh, I can't believe this. Like I'm just getting out of school and somebody wants me to be their creative director. Or somebody wants me to be their director of social media. Like this is going to look amazing. And it's it's not because what they want is they want somebody who doesn't have the experience to know that you have to have like all this experience to have that kind of role of leadership. So what they really want is something that they can only pay $25,000 to, or keep on in like a freelance position for something as big as like a directorship. Wow. Um, and it's a, I think it's a form of taking advantage of young people uh, because the other side of that, what I learned afterwards was now I, at like 25 with only a couple of years experience, my last position on my resume was director of social media. I was not qualified to be a director of social media at any other company, but nobody wanted to hire me to be like a social media coordinator, which is what I had essentially been doing because they were like, well, why would she want to take such a step down? So I, it was, it was treated like it was such a great um, opportunity or leg up for me, but it was actually in some ways, really stifling. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it to the point where I ended up taking that off of my resume, or when I would put it on my resume, if it was relevant, I would put like social media coordinator. And I just would kind of hope that they probably weren't going to call these people. Um, because it's not that it really ended on a bad foot. Like we, we parted ways graciously. But I realized later, I don't think that they had, I don't think they had animus in their hearts. Like I don't think that they were trying to, set me up for failure, but I think in their quest to maybe save money or cut corners or, you know, find some young, fresh voice, they didn't, they didn't do what I think is such an important part of leadership, which is that you are a steward. If you're in leadership, you are a steward of your like direct reports careers and you have to take that responsibility seriously and you have to set them up for success, even if it's not with you. So Yeah. yeah. That I think was probably my greatest trial. And also my biggest lesson is I would not take
0: a role like that again. And I think it's important, you know, one of the first things, so I'm a year post-grad and one of the first things that I felt, um, a lot of adults in my life were telling me was like, don't settle for that first job. Don't take the first mm-hmm. thing because it's there. You know, you want to really enjoy it. It doesn't have you just because you're new to this workforce, doesn't mean you have to take the shittiest thing that's given to you. You right. know, Um, And I think that's important because, you know, we get really excited and, you know, we don't think that we're qualified for anything else. Like, I think it's so mental, um, you know, but I think your, your story is really important because I think many of us find ourselves in a situation of I'm fresh out of school or I'm new to the workforce. Somebody's offering me this thing that sounds really great and shiny and beautiful. But when you really peel back the layers to it, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I don't know about you, but I feel like almost
1: everybody my age has a story about something that like, kind of like approaches like a predatory job offer or like a predatory, like whatever job where it's, you know, there's always the jokes of like, hey, it's an entry-level position. It pays $12 an hour and we want five years experience and, you know, a, a doctoral yeah. degree. Like, that's always the joke version of it, right? But we've all seen things like that. Or, you know, I, I was offered, when I was trying to find jobs to be a video producer, I think one of the job the video producer jobs I, I interviewed for and was ultimately offered, it was like, it was 80% travel. It was often seven days a week. It was, um, some parts of that travel were not covered uh and it didn't have any kind of like hazard pay or bonus pay or overtime pay and it was 14 50 an hour and i was just and i there had to be a point because yeah you're right like i was young i had bills to pay i had student loans and i thought who am i to say no right. to a video like a especially in the creative industry like the media industry there's always this feeling of just like who are you to say no to like this job that everybody else wants right like everybody wants to be able to do this and somebody's offering this to you and you're just going to say, no, like what, it's just not good enough for you. But I did be like, was, that's not what I want my life to look like. Yeah. And if it means that like I have to go back to being a nanny, I would rather happily be a nanny because I love working with kids. Mm-hmm. And again, it filled that, that space of like doing something good. I'd rather be a 30 or 40 or 50 year old nanny or, you know, anything else than, um, be doing a job that I knew made me miserable because I liked the way it sounded when I told people, like at a bar, yeah, that I'm doing that.
0: Well, I, you know, and I think it also requires us to really check our pride and check our ego and mm-hmm. have the hard conversation, um, internally of is this something that I'm doing for myself or is this something that makes me sound good to somebody's whose opinion I, I don't really care about? Uh, yes, exactly. You know? and, and that's a hard thing to come to terms with, and I, you know, I think it's a really big growth period as well. But, you know, I think it's, it's one of those really hard things that you don't want to go through, but I think comes with the most learning experience maybe. And I feel like your twenties are all about learning experiences and like failing, trying it again. And I don't know, maybe that's how every decade of life is supposed to be, which that's the case. I'm here for it. Um, but it's still, you know, there's so much that goes into it. And I also apologize. You guys obviously can't see this, but it's, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my room is like pitch black right now I was, I was going to ask you and I wasn't totally sure how to phrase it <laughs> I know the right way to be like hold on one second I also <laughs> can probably tell I have my pajama bottoms on right now I ate too fast at dinner and I needed to get out of the clothes that so I guess was guess in. Is, it's probably about 9 p.m there
1: right so I guess the yeah sun is
0: down. So it's okay. a little bit dark <laughs> slowly
1: getting darker and I was like she's gonna think I'm a psychopath (laughs) I mean it was interesting but I knew there probably had to be a reason (laughs) oh that's awesome
0: um Chelsea I have to say I think and I said it earlier like one of the coolest things about doing this is that conversations so many times you can never predict them and I think that's one of the most beautiful things about them Mm-hmm. And like I said, there was so much about you that of course I didn't know. Cause I didn't really know you before we sat down to talk, but mm-hmm. I think your path and the things that you are so passionate about, I think there are so many like teachable moments in them for us. And you know, one of the things that I have really found myself toying with as we've been talking is this idea of like, what do I value as success? What do I value? Where do I value my time? Um, and, you know, I hope that's another thing that you guys as as the listeners have gathered from this is, you know, to be successful, to do all these awesome things. It doesn't have to be what the world tells you is the right thing to do. Um, and I love that you're in a creative field. I love that you love the work that you do. I think it's incredible that you're involved in these, you know, volunteerships and these through these programs that actually make impact and have meaning. Um, and I think, especially now in the current climate of our world, it's what we need more of now than ever. Um, and so it's just it's been really wonderful to talk to you and get to know you. And you know. You, truly in this conversation, I feel like you have pushed me to want to do more and want to be better. Um, And I hope for you guys, that same message has been very apparent to you. Um, So Chelsea, for people who want to stay up to date with you and all the cool stuff that you have going on, where can they find you? Well,
1: first of all, thank you. That was a very, very sweet thing to say. And I really appreciate you inviting me to be on your show. Uh, This has been such a cool experience and I've really enjoyed talking to you too. Um, and if people want to keep up with me, there's a couple of different ways they can do it. One is, um, obviously I, I invite anyone who's listening to listen to our podcast that we have on our Hollis network. We have rise, which is for business owners, uh, rise together, which as I mentioned is for, uh, rising in community with people who may be different from you. We also produce another show called straight up with Trent Shelton, mm. which is going to be a lot of like, really that's like if you just like need a boost in your day, if like you're having a dark time, like you put on Trent Shelton and he's gonna really make you feel, make you feel on fire. So that's a great one. Um, outside of my job at the Hollis Company, I actually produce and appear in a podcast called What, uh, and it's a competitive comedy. Uh, we call it a competitive comedy entertainment experience. So uh, we're talking about everything from mysteries and history all the way to crazy stories from today and beyond modern treasure hunts space or just like something really simple like how does baking work so we really run the gamut on that and you can find that anywhere that you listen to podcasts it's wut what pod uh we're also on social media Um, and then my social media uh one of the most fortunate things about being a uh, second-generation American, is that nobody else has my name. So you can find me at Chelsea Harfouche on any social media platform because it's never taken. And please oh, don't take it. Mine's <laughs> Denicio. So yeah. I like
0: we're, not, we're not in, like, the Smith crew, which is not. Right. Yeah,
1: no. Yeah. I mean, shout out to the Smiths of the world. The Smiths, your Jones.
0: You're, you exist a lot in North Carolina, man, but we yeah. are a little bit That's different. different.
1: My co-host, my co-host, her last name is Maine, and she had to she had to go to Ellie Maney on social media because her her name was taken. And I was like, I'm sorry, that is not a struggle that I can identify
0: with, but I do feel for you. Yes, yes. So I will, take my, <laughs> I will take my cool last name, and I'll be honest. One of the things where I was like, I and I say this as somebody who also has a bit of a difficult last name to say. I can't mm-hmm. tell you the amount of times I sat and was like, Haro, Harfu. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's okay. I am um, I
1: sometimes so uh when we're when we're recording credits for the podcasts, you know, they my name would be in the credits, so I will record myself saying it and yep. then send it to somebody. Uh before having them record it cuz I understand. I mean, it's just it's not a common last name and also like in general like Arab last names are not when the people like interact with a lot specifically even like in Texas, like uh, San Antonio has a large Lebanese population, but Austin doesn't. So I'm not going to expect anybody just to know off the bat how to say it, but it is pronounced tarfouche.
0: It's funny you say that. I would (laughs) write in parentheses, like the breakdown. You like, you know how Google, it can be like the pronunciation. That's, that's how I do it. So whatever it takes to make it work, right? Yeah, totally. (laughs) But Chelsea, thank you so much for hanging out with me tonight. Um, I appreciate learning about you and I hope that you guys will, listen to her and listen to all the cool things that she produces. Cause come to find her as producer Chelsea. That's how I know her. So (laughs) (laughs) I think, I, I think you guys will obviously really enjoy this episode if you made it to this point, but I will see you guys next week. Thank you so much for being here and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.